Every fortnight we publish a talk from Eugene Halliday's collected works. These talks were recorded in Manchester and Liverpool, commencing in the late 1950s up until his death in 1987. This is episode 12, The Two Paths. about a very important subject, namely two ways of living. One is called the way of the moon, and the other is called the way of the sun. Now, in ancient philosophy, the moon way has been associated with ancestor worship and the maintenance of bodies on earth by means of marriage and childbearing. So when we talk about the way of the moon, we should be referring to the mode whereby bodies are manufactured on earth for the experience to be gained in those bodies. And the result of this mode of looking at reality is that the children must obey the ancestors. The way of the moon is the way of the ancestors. Now, most people are actually engaged in this way. Most people do, in fact, when they go up, get married and bear children and provide bodies of experience. And why should there be a need for bodies of experience? Now, you remember that a dualism is impossible. Dualism means that there are two basics in reality. One of power and one of consciousness. Now, if there were two basics and they were totally dissimilar, they could not interact. Now, in fact, they do interact, namely consciousness and body because we can move our body by an act of will. We are conscious of our body movements. We are aware that we can move the bodies by act of will. And therefore, we will, and all psychic states, cannot ultimately be different from the power that maintains the so-called objective or material universe. And let's fix in our minds that if we hadn't got bodies, we wouldn't be here experiencing. Now, the bodies are made by sentient power. The power explains the fact that we can exist and move, and the sentience, the feeling, explains how we know that we move. Two factors. We know we move, The knowing and the moving are two aspects of one fact. Dualism is impossible. Consequently, consciousness itself and the object of consciousness, namely the world, cannot ultimately be separated. To be conscious is to be conscious of a world and to have a world is to be conscious of it. Our bodies are made by condensations of power, power which is sentient. The bodies of plants, of animals, of humans, are all made by power which is sentient, condensing itself to make itself objective and through its objectification, gaining experience of itself in its two aspects, namely as power, self-mobility, and as awareness, sentience, consciousness of that ability to self-move. Now, in the most ancient teaching about this, it was described as two ways, the way of the moon and the way of the sun. Of the moon way, we have said, it is a synonym of ancestor worship, parent worship. Children have to be grateful to parents because the parents 
are provided above it. And the parents have to be grateful to the children for projecting the intention of the parent from generation to generation. One generation telleth another, says the Bible. Telling in two ways, shows, demonstrates another, and gives orders to another. Now you all know, having been children at some time, that parents tend to give orders, tend to educate us, tend to require obedience. Society as civilized is based on obedience of children to orders given by parents. So in the moon way, we are to think, we're talking about collective civilizations, ancestral order giving, and obedience by their offspring. Now this keeps the cycle of the universe going. So we have to think this way of the ancestors. This moon way is essentially repetitive from generation to generation. All parents whether vegetable, animal, or human, tend to impose on their children. The seed of a plant imposes the form of the growing plant. The seed of the oak imposes the form of the oak on the acorn. The acorn cannot grow up to be a hippopotamus. It must grow to be an oak. So there is an imposition there. And every generation begets its like Now, in contrast to this, the way of the sun means the affirmation of freedom. In Sanskrit, for sun there, S-U-R-Y-A, Surya, means free affirmation. It does not mean obedience to parents. It does not mean obedience to collectives, to societies as such. It means individual free will. These are the two ways. We can either live from the dictates of a collective or we can live from the intention of our own free inner will. Now this produces a terrific tension between the two systems. Remember, the symbols in the sky are the moon, which has not a light of its own, and the sun, which is a generator of light, and heat. Now, because we have said dualism is impossible, there is no such thing as an absolutely unintelligent being. So we have to say that the moon has an energy system and the sun has an energy system. These two orbs are intelligences of a certain kind. Now you know that the moon is what we call roughly dead. There isn't anything going on it like the earth. But we also know that the life on the earth is from the sun. If the sun ceases to radiate, then life will disappear from the earth. So we can say that the energy from the sun has organized life on earth. And therefore, insofar as we, the living blanket of the earth, as we, human beings on earth, can move about, we are really sun beings. We are really beings embodying solar energy. Energy from the sun embodies itself as us, as our intelligence, as our free will. But the moon is a kind of creature that needs feeding. The moon has got to grow. And you know this in astronomy, the distances between bodies in the universe is increasing. The moon is receding from the earth. So, the universe is expanding. The meaning of this is that at some point in the future, the moon will be at such a distance from the earth, not the 240,000 miles that it is at the moment, much further, and the moon will have derived so much energy from beings on the earth 
that the moon will be able to grow. And at that remote period, the earth will have developed in a certain way and have become a new sun. So the positions will be changed. Instead of the earth taking its energy from the sun, the earth will become a new sun and the moon will become a new earth deriving its life from earth beings. Now the way the moon derives life from the earth beings is by the death of earth beings. As beings on earth die, their energies are collected together and they are pushed by certain energies to the moon and will organize the moon into a remote future and make it into a new earth. So we have to see the moon as a peculiar drawing, eating being. The baleful aspect of the moon. The moon as living on beings on the earth, on the death of beings on the earth. As we have to see that we on earth are parasitic on the energies of the sun. And this is a very, very tension-creating belief. It's a very ancient belief. And the more you examine it, the truer you will see that it is. All parents who have had children know that there is a battle between themselves and the children. The children do not like to be ordered about by the parents. But the parents are equipped with an instinct to give their orders, to change them. Now we said that the moon is like a cycle of energy. The moon forces create the biological living of human beings. The biological generation cycle whereby we are kept going as brothers. Now the infinite, eternal, sentient power which we call the Godhead, that power cannot operate particularly except through particulars. As an infinite power, if it remained in its infinity, it would not be ever an objective universe. To become objective, it must finite, must limit, must encapsulate its own energies. So we say, in its infinity, we may talk about the Godhead, the source of the God. But in its total self-grasping, we call it God. The energy that grasps itself from the infinite and establishes itself as a sphere of objective being, we call God. And the logic whereby it maintains itself, we call the Son of God, and the process whereby it maintains itself with that logic, we call the Spirit of God. So we have three things. A power, a logical, formal way of structuring, and a functioning of that logical way under the pressure of that power. That is called the Holy Trinity. We cannot think of anything whatever except in terms of that Trinity. We can't think of a power that is not formed functioning. We cannot think of a form which is not a power functioning. We cannot think of a function which is not a power self-formulating. So this trinity is very important. It is represented in us by the power in the tummy, the logic in the head, and the expressing function of the emotive life coming out. Now if we allow this self-evident truth, the infinite cannot manifest except by finiting itself, limiting itself, encapsulating, ensphering itself. If it doesn't do this, if it doesn't make a sphere, it has not objectified itself. If it doesn't objectify itself, we are not here. We are objectifications of original sentient power. As you sit there, if you feel your being, I don't mean tactile like this, just feel inside, the tension of existence. You know that you're self-mobile. You can shrug your shoulders, wave a hand, lift a leg, 
your self-mobilizing being, which proves that you are power. Power is not something different from you that you have or have not. Power is you. But you also know this power. You know your self-mobility. You know your self-observation. You know your intelligence. And this sentience and this power are not separate. They cannot be a dualism of utterly different factors. The power and the consciousness are intimately related so that they are inseparable. That means the more intelligent you are, the more power you have. The more power you have, the more intelligent you are. And you gain in both ways by studying both aspects. You study the nature of consciousness and you study the nature of power. Now you know that power has energy, energy means in work, affirming, force at work is energy. You know that this power actually is your being. It's not a separate thing that you either own or do not own. It is you yourself as power. And because of non-dualism, this power which is you is sentient, is aware, feels itself to be. Now, because the infinite cannot manifest except by self-objectification, which means encapsulating in spheres of being, spheres like electrons, protons, atoms, molecules, compounds, always in spheres. We have a skin around us, an integument, whereby we are maintained as units of function. Our skin, once upon a time, as you know, was spherical. We were an egg, fertilized by a sperm. We started to exist like a sphere. That was our first encapsulation. By subdivision within this prime egg, and by variations of function within the subdivision, we have become the complicated figures that we know. Insofar as the infinite sentient power wills a world, wills a universe, wills existence, it necessarily wills encapsulation, ensphering, limitation. Now, insofar as it does that, it is imposing on the energy which is itself. It's a self-imposition on the infinite, by the infinite, to make the universe. The result of this imposition is living being. In the case of the human being, the result of this imposition is the creation, the generation, the evolution of a being that can become conscious of the whole process. Now, nobody has ever seen an animal, an elephant, a rhinoceros, a dog, a cat, sit down and write a book on metaphysics. The ones that write the books are human beings. They're the ones that reflect on their origin in a way that we have never seen any animal do. So there's something very peculiar about man as opposed to the animal. And the source of this peculiarity is that a special energy from the sun has radiated to life on earth and progressively organized a being that can reflect on its origin in the sun. And that being is man. Man is a very, very peculiar being. He's a midway being between non-being and absolute being. He's a being in process. He's a being not yet completed. He's a being in process of evolution. Now the evolution of man depends upon the growth of two factors in him. The growth of power, which he gains more by exercise than by lack of it, and the exercise of becoming more and more conscious. Power and consciousness. These two in the human being have brought the human being to a point where he can and does study his own origin, 
in a way that animals do not, plants do not. You haven't seen a tree in the garden writing the history of trees. You haven't seen an elephant trumpeting the evolution of the elephant. We have and do see human beings writing about their own development from a primordial sphere, like an ovum provided by a mother, through progressive developments of more and more consciousness to more and more power. When we gained the consciousness of the technology of spaceflight, we became able to space fly. We put men on the moon, very powerful beings, because we had very powerful ideas. We have a grand staff, hundreds of thousands of men using brains, mathematics, geometry, astronomy, in order to put physical bodies with energy, with power, onto the moon. There's a very intimate relationship between consciousness as such and power gaining as such. The two are inseparable. If you wish to gain power, you have to gain more know-how. Now, to gain this know-how experimentally, and we'll see why it has to be gained experimentally in a moment, to gain it experimentally, we need bodies of experience. And it's a function of what we call the ancestors, particularly the fathers, to provide the impulse to create the body. So the sperms in a man drive looking for a substantial egg in which to put their idea to develop it. There is a drive to create bodies. This drive comes under the heading forces of the titri, forces of their ancestors who posit the bodies. Because we cannot gain experience bit by bit without a body of experience. Now everybody must be specialized in a special way to gain special information. When you go off to become educated as a young person and you go to a university and you strive for O-levels, A-levels, BAs, MAs, PhDs, whatever you try to get, you are actually trying to increase specific knowledge. The one that does an arts course is not doing the same thing as the one that does a science course or a philosophy course. All knowledges, whatever, are specific in their own realm. And for this we need special organs. The nervous system of a scientifically biased person differs from the nervous system of an artistically orientated person. The nervous system of a musician is not like the nervous system of a mountaineer. For every specialized knowledge, there must be a specialized body. Now we know as a fact that our own bodies are made of protoplasm, which is of our fathers and mothers. There is no break. The line of protoplasm is continuous. And therefore we know that whatever talents we have are a product of ancestral experience. You know how when you see Negroes dancing, they dance with a wonderful abandon, nearly impossible, to a Caucasian. They have something about them as a talent in their bodies that the Caucasian doesn't have. But we also know that it was Caucasians that got on the moon first, and not the body rhythm fellows, but the head orientated, technically developed beings. They got there first. Now, every talent is one, and everyone is valid in its own field of experience. There is no such thing as one being superior to the other. They are all different and all valid, and every one of them is a product of the push of a line of sentient power in a specific direction. You all know the old saying that it takes seven generations to make a diamond cutter. That means that the continuity of the protoplasmic experience of diamonds acting back on the protoplasm of successive children makes them more and more able to feel the meaning. 
the internal structure of the diamond, where to put that little cutting tool to make it break in the right place. There must be specific behavior and specific value. So if you put your little drop of pond water under the microscope, you see millions of little creatures. All differ in function and form and mode of life, and they all are busy eating each other in order to live. And when you think of yourself jumped upon by a tiger and eaten, you tend to feel a little <coughs> uncomfortable. But the tiger doesn't at that same moment. We have to recognize that the life behind the particular is pushing the particular to develop particularly. So that from the point of view of our ancestry, we are all slaves of biology. <coughs> slaves of a biological process of body producing. Now every mother knows perfectly well that when she's given birth to a child and seen that child grow up with it, develop and show signs of being like her or even like her husband if she likes her husband, she's very pleased and she tries to develop the child in the way she wishes that child to go. If the child disobeys, then the mother has trouble. Something has gone wrong. Let's think about this very carefully. For every child a woman bears, there is an awareness in the mother that something has been taken off her, biologically. A possibility of free self-evolution is diminished by every child she bears. The energy she has to pay into the child reduces the probability that she, unless she has extraordinary, tremendous energy, she will not develop herself towards freedom as long as she is serving the development of the child that she believes is biologically derivative from her. So there's this tremendous weight on the parents, of the children of the parents. Responsibility for them takes time, energy, awareness, to take care of them, to nourish them, to educate them. And we, as encapsulated finite beings, have not got an infinite energy supply, and consequently the energy we expend on our children and producing children for experience of sentient power, that energy expenditure is lost to the individual parent and especially to the mother. So the shamanistic view of it is that a woman with a child is a woman with a cord stretching out from her to that child, forever fretting and worrying about his welfare. She's using her energy on furthering the life of the child. So it's a probability of personal self-evolution towards free will is made more and more remote by the number of children she has. I remember a particular case of that that a woman I knew had a husband who wanted a daughter and she didn't get one until she'd given birth to 22 sons. And they used to joke that they had two football teams and no girl to admire it. Now this woman amazingly got smaller and smaller and smaller, just as if the substance of the mother were being taken out of her to project this line in children. She really diminished. She lost about three inches in height in producing this marvelous double team. And only when the father saw, because he'd been right, Actually, it was a slaughter in an abattoir. And uh, he only stopped trying to breed when he got a daughter because the men in the abattoir used to say it takes a man to make a girl. Now, imagine this. It is a fact. This woman is not merely one woman. 
every woman who's ever had a child has become diminished in some degree by bearing that child. And the more she expends energy on the child, on its education, on its care for bringing up in the moral sense, the less opportunity she has for personal self-development unless she's extraordinary in power, in intelligence, and in dedication to personal evolution. And doesn't that sound awful? Now, because of this biological fact, there has been a revolt, because if the biological principle of generation begets degeneration, we are losing power all the time, then we would finally finish up as a circle of breeding beings, breeding beings, breeding beings, with no possibility of evolution. It would be an entirely repetitive biological cycle, with no improvement. Now you see that demonstration quite easily in the animal world where man doesn't try experiments in breeding and cross-breeding. In the wild world, a tiger is a tiger is a tiger from generation to generation. And a warthog is a warthog is a warthog. From generation to generation, they do not become more and more refined. When a warthog wallows in the mud, it doesn't progressively over generations refine its wallowing. It goes on being warthoggery. Now you can see what would happen if there were only the moon cycle, only the biological cycle, it would produce beings utterly incapable of development towards greater freedom. Therefore, the very same power that established the biological cycle to make bondage of experience has inserted a special dispensation into that same biological line, but in a very small quantity. Instead of acting from the absolute, wanting to visualize layers of beings, the infinite up there, then the first encapsulation, that's the whole universe as one, and then successive smaller spheres, smaller, smaller, down to the atom, subatomic particle, and all the time they're getting less and less power, less and less consciousness. So when we come down to the most minute little particle of energy, we come down to the least intelligent particle of energy. Sphere within sphere within sphere. Until the last sphere, the smallest little subatomic particle, has no freedom of choice. Just like an electron goes around the protonic nucleus. So, the smaller ones are condemned. So we can consider them to be under cosmic law of ever-diminishing consciousness, ever-diminishing power. We have the power with a laser beam to destroy life. The lower levels of organic life have not invented a laser beam and hit us with it. We have invented it. Our consciousness is higher than that of an earthworm. So when we end sphere, progressively smaller and smaller, we diminish intelligence and we diminish power. So at the bottom end, there is maximal inertia, minimal intelligence. That means that the minutest particles of so-called matter are very dim-witted. So if you get hold of a stone and hit it, it bounces a bit, but it does not write to summit in praise of your skill in hitting it. And a human being can write to summit about this pebble, if he wishes. William Blake said the grains of sand on the shore are little men meant little counting. But each little grain is saying only one thing. The minutest particles of sentient power, the basis of the so-called material world, are saying each one in its own way. The electron says to itself all day, electron, 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 electron. 
Their saying is the repetition of their mode of existence. Saying is being. In fact, that word say and the word be are very closely related. To say, to state an aim, is to become something determined by the stated aim. Now, we've seen that if this progressive inner end feeling were the only process that would finish up a world of discrete particles of minimal intelligence and minimal power all rotating in an inert system that could not improve. And this was generated from the absolute progressiveness. Now at a certain point there appeared a burst of energy and that burst of energy in religious mythology is called Lucifer light bearer that burst of energy from itself assumed the role that the absolute had originally imagine the absolute has the power to ensphere itself and within that sphere to make another sphere and within that sphere to make another sphere and so on down to the minutest sphere subatomic particle so called there is a certain critical point a revolt occurred where the condensed energy burst out from the restraint and shone and became what we call a sun. A star is the start of a sun. Now, we have said we cannot divide sentience from power and therefore there is no such thing as a non-intelligent being the fact that the moon is relatively immobile and remains more or less the same from 1,000 years to the next means that it hasn't got any internal mobility and therefore its intelligence is very dim. And it's a feeling intelligence. It waxes and wanes in feeling. It's nearly committing itself, but not quite and it nearly uncommits itself, but not quite. Now the sun is totally different. The sun is a body of sentient power, so powerful that when it contracts it, it bursts into radiation. And it made itself innerly mobile in a very peculiar way. The power in the sun, which appears to us as radiation, is a product of the condensation of the sun into a self-will. Can you imagine the power of the infinite that made all the spheres reaching a certain critical point where at the very lowest point, the greatest darkness, there was a revolt. Revolt means re-will. I will have a different kind of will. Instead of making a further sphere inside me, I'll burst out. And at that moment, becomes a radiant body because sentience and power are identical in base. Therefore, at the moment of radiating that power, that being demonstrates a return to free, intelligent willing. Self-will has condensed it. Symbolically, that is Saturn. Self-will has revolted against the condensation that is Jupiter. Self-will has balanced those two, that is Mercury. And in the centre of that, the sun is an intelligent, radiant being. And its will is exactly the opposite to that of the moon cycle. Its will is to free liberation from their ancestral dictatorship. Now, insofar as we are aware that we are a microcosm, a little universe of and in the macrocosm, the big universe. We know we have a solar plexus in us. We know by our own inner feeling that if we feel we are being deprived, we tend to get a sinking feeling in the solar plexus. Have you noticed it? 
And if you then obey that feeling, you will revolt against the imposition. Whatever is restraining you, you will revolt against it. But in so doing, you'll incur necessarily the wrath of the moon, the angry moon. You know that from the point of view of the anthropologists and the mythologists, there is a phase of the moon called angry. And there's another phase, benign moon, shining blandly in the sky, providing light for night travel. But the angry moon is the moon that has its biological cycle threatened by the free will. Now, in the ancient religions, there was a process whereby a few, very, very few, were said to be on the path of the sun. They were moving towards ossification, towards solarization, towards free will. And if they were to be too open in declaring themselves on the sun path, the moonbeams would destroy them and kill them. Like they persecuted and murdered the prophets and all messiahs. As soon as the sun being appears, the moon beings are threatened in their biological cycle. How do we feel if we say we could revolt by our inner power and intelligence against all orders of human society? And if we did so openly, probably we would be put in jail or put to death or both. It is a fact that we have inside us two things, inertia, which is of the moon, and initiative, which is of the sun. And that when we threaten to do something original, we feel nervousness in us, because we know that the inertia of our being is going to be disrupted. How do we feel if we want to make a change, to become more powerful, more intelligent, when we know that if we do so, and manifest it, our contemporaries, even our best friends, will be very annoyed with us for beating them to the pump. Now, the sun is an intelligent being, and I mean the sun in the sky. That's why Jacob Berman called the sun a god for this world. The absolute is an invisible godhead. The God is its first sphere, but it's invisible. We know it's there because the whole mass of the stars is there and rotates. There is a rotatory force governing the rotation of the stars. The whole visible universe is rotating. And we know it rotates because an invisible power encapsulates it. But when we come down to the sun, you see a visible sphere radiating light, which is consciousness. Remember that our consciousness is solar energy radiating from the sun to us. And insofar as we have received it, we are to that degree intelligent. Rupa, that is the heat. And as to our willpower, that is the heat of the sun. And as to the special refined chemistry of our body, which can receive the enlightenment and the power of the sun, we are specially constituted of solar chemistry. We get a special body, very sensitive, made entirely of solar energy. Now, consider this. All the beings that are on the moon cycle are doomed to die and are sacrificial to the growth of other bodies, the most obvious one in our case being the moon, which will become an earth at a remote time in the future. The whole of the biological cycle is sacrificial. The individual is at the mercy of the drive from the absolute to positive bodies for experience and keep the cycle going. But the sun is being revolting against the repetitive, non-improving lunar cycle. And that sun in us 
is our initiative. Now, if we are capable of recalling ourselves to itself, we know that we can will and act. But in order freely to will and act, we must remember that we are solar derivatives, not mere lunar derivatives. As to our biology and our body, we are moon oppressed. As to our initiative, we are representatives of the sun. We are called sons of the sun. If you read your history, the mythology, you find everywhere the story of the sons of the sun. And the reference is always to beings of initiative able to overthrow inertias and persistently pursued by inertia beings who have become terrified of initiative and wish to destroy it. And when we think truthfully in the light of pure consciousness, we are encouraging the development of solarization of our being and we are moving towards total free self-determination. Now one of the things about consciousness is this. It is able to precipitate forms, which we call ideas, and to see them very clearly, the way they are structured, and the way they interrelate, and to make them self-consistent. Now, if we get a truth, and define that truth with another truth, so that both truths fit, so that when you look at the one, you see the other. When you look at the other, you see the one. When you get all your truths together, you make a body called the body of truth. And this is the solar body. This is the auxiliified body. This is the solarized being. Now, if a formal structure of sentient power is entirely consistent with itself in all its inner forms, it is immortal. Mortality means it can disintegrate. But a properly defined truth, defined internally in such a way that it is utterly self-consistent, that truth cannot be destroyed. So let me take a simple example. One triangle, how many sides? Three. It is consistent with itself. Say triangle equals three sides. And you will find, if you examine the idea, a certain amount of pleasure in knowing that the triangle has three sides and the square has four. And a perfect circle has a center and that the periphery of that circle has all its points equidistant from the center. Those are self-consistent ideas. And whether you fall asleep or wake up, you will always come back to this. Oh, a circle, a square, a triangle, a pentagon, a hexagon, whatever. They're always and forever the same. And that is a self-structured, self-consistent being of ideas. Now, ideas are not nothing, they are energies. And they are sentient energies. And when we make a body of ideas inside ourselves, a body of ideas are a body of forces, a body of sentient points, self-consistent, we have made an immortal body. If somebody comes along and runs over the physical body, it will not matter to the consciousness of that being in a totally self-consistent, self-defining inner structure. He will remain with the reference body even if the physical body is killed. It's that knowledge that allowed Bruno to refuse to recant when he was ordered by the papacy to do so. He burned at the stake with tremendous courage because he was so integrated he didn't care about the physical body's inconsistencies. He had another body, a body of true ideas, an eternal, indestructible self-reference. Now, we are all born from the moon and the sun. If you look at your zodiac and put at the top the sign of Leo, and cancer next to each other. You have the sun on the Leo and the moon on the cancer. 
and then go round the zodiac in both ways, adding the same planet all the way round, and finish up on Saturn in Aquarius and Capricorn. Saturn is that tenacity that holds everything together, which is polarized in the sun and the moon as will and biological repetition. Now, the more conscious we become internally, it can only be internal, we can't see it outside. If I look at this object here from outside, I cannot, with my eyes looking at that object, see the intelligence of that object. But if I want to see that, I must take this object inside my mind and reform it in my mind, in here, and then feel what it is like to be one of these as a feeling, and I will derive another kind of experience. Now, external experience is sense stimuli from outside and is essentially fundamentally mechanical. All external sense stimuli are mechanically stimulative. And if we pay attention to them, and especially if we identify with them, we become machines, slaves of external self-stimuli. The external is energy. If it imposes on us its form, we have lost our own inner form. Now, if we go internally and say, where is my will? That's my son. Where is my biological persistence? That's my moon. We can feel the difference between being a child of our parents and being a self-will. Is it not true that if we look inside, we can feel, yes, I had a mother, I had a father, and I disagreed with them in certain aspects. I agreed with them every time they subserve my end, and I disagree with them every time they contradict me. My self-will, my son in me, is radiant power which is able to break the inertia of ancestral dictatorial command. Are we not then internally necessarily at war with ourselves? Now this internal war is called by Muhammad the big war. The war with other people outside is little. It consists of occasional thumpings, insults, cheatings in business and so on. It's very small. It doesn't require a lot of energy to lie to other people. Very easy. But it does require a tremendous amount of energy to tell the truth internally to ourselves. Now all yogis, when fully attained, know reality to be exactly the same for all yogis. And they have a name for it, they call it Purna. Now the P-U-R there means city. And the N-A now means serpent. Sensuality. Purna means a city built by sensuousness. Every being that is living is a sensuous being that has structured itself in a special way. The sensuousness is na and the structure is pur. Purna is the ultimate objective reality perceived by the attained yogi. Now do we like to think that we are cunning, deceitful, unreliable, na means, we say na to other beings, we say ya to ourselves. We put the two together, ya na, that's Sanskrit for way of living, way of being, the way of the universe, the way of the individual, ya na. It means yes, no. We are yes beings, no beings. We say yes to our own innermost development and no to any other being's interference with our development. And that saying yes and no is called yana, the way of life. In English, you could read it Y-A-N-A, yay, nay. You're all familiar with it. Your yay be yay, and your nay, nay. Put both together. Let your yana be yana. Let your dialectical yes be a no, and your dialectical no be a yes. 
If you say no to somebody, it's because you're saying yes to you. If you say yes to somebody, it's because you have found that they're not negating you. Now, how do you like to think about this as ultimate, absolute selfishness in us as individuals? Do we like the feeling that we are inborn natural liars on the now side and thoroughly decent, helpful creatures on the yah side? We don't mind being helpful creatures, but do we mind being twisted and misrepresented do we mind watching the money program and feeling cool, calm and collected? Do we mind when Mrs. Satcher goes to butter up Mr. Reagan and Mr. Reagan is duly buttered until she's out of sight and then reverses his statement? Do we mind? Or do we say, oh, that's very naughty. A bishop in an interview recently said the funny thing. He said, I don't care what the laity believe, they can believe what they like, I can still be their bishop. Bishop means overlooker. Hmm. If we look over the situation, we automatically become bishops. Look around at everybody in the room. And at that moment of looking around, you're a bishop. Now, if you then say, I will now represent truth and tell people, behold, I have looked upon you and I'm a bishop. But I'm also going to stand in the place of myself as bishop and represent my bishopness to you, and I immediately become a vicar. A vicar is one who's standing in place of, to vicar you, that is to develop you and create you, in a very special way, by passing on the information from the bishop. Now where did the bishop get it from? In the famous pseudo-Dionysus Christian work, it says very clearly, a bishop must never talk to anybody except another bishop about essential truths. And the bishop gets his information directly from God. Now, who is God? Well, in Christianity, God is Christ, God incarnate. In other religions, it could be Buddha, which means enlightened intellect. Or it could be Tao in China. But it's always the same. The absolute sentient power is the source of all intelligence and all power. So when you look around and see all these different beings, you say, behold these beings, yea, verily they are different. Some are dark-haired, some are light-haired, some are big, some are small, some are thinner than others, and so on. You are a bishop at that moment. And when you tell each other this, and enlighten each other in case we have forgotten we are a vicar. We can go down to any level in the hierarchy and we can go to any height in the hierarchy by an increase or decrease of conscious awareness of our own innermost content. There is no elevation or no improvement there is not a rising in consciousness internally. Now this is a terrible position to be in, isn't it? We know we are children of parents. We know we have been required to obey them, and we know that whenever we could, we haven't. We also know, some of us, that there are children of the children and that the children have wanted to control their children, rather the grandchildren and the other children, and that the children have disobeyed. And we have to accept this terrible thing. There can be no absolute obedience of children to parents if the children have any movement towards free will. And there's the dialectical difficulty. The parents want their children to be brilliant like the sun, talented, intelligent, full of initiative and mysteriously obedient. How do we feel when we see that utter irresolvable problem of the three and the biologically bound? Let's think about that.
listening to the Eugene Halliday podcast. Please subscribe to receive notifications of future episodes. Thank you.